masters of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true thought of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, writer, medievalist, mom, and lover of handwriting. Did I spend my middle school years perfecting the letter K because I thought it was an ugly letter? No one will ever know. So here we are in fit three of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the wondrous, thoughtful, magical 14th century poem that we've been exploring. If you've missed the previous three episodes, I'd recommend listening to those before listening to this one, because we're now on the downward slope towards the exciting conclusion of this poem. There's just one more episode coming up next week. Gawain has found himself in an enchantingly beautiful castle in snowy distant woods, just in time to celebrate Christmas and the new year. And much to his relief and trepidation, he's learned that the Green Chapel where he must meet the blow given by the mysterious green knight, is only a few miles distant. Despite all Gawain's negative past experience with games offered by strangers, he's entered into yet another game offered by a stranger with the host of the castle, Lord Bertilac. Bertilac is going hunting for the next few days, um, like day by day. He'll come back to the castle at night. And anything he kills in his hunt, he will give to Gawain, if Gawain gives him anything he has received at the castle in Bertilac's absence. Fit 3 is constructed in a really interesting way. It's split between scenes of Bertilac hunting and scenes of quite a different kind of hunt. I'll be frank with you, this is my least favorite fit hunting scenes, of which uh, there are a lot in this, in this section, are not really my jam. However, hunting was an elaborate, important medieval ritual for the nobles of the time. I say nobles because um, that's mainly who hunted, or at least who hunted legally. And I say ritual because it had just as many rules, um, correct ways of doing it, um, as, as any right in a church. The king owned forests for the most part in medieval England, and he granted permission to certain people to hunt in them. 
Otherwise, anything caught in those forests belonged to him. Peasants were punished severely for daring to hunt for food in those areas. Hunting was also another area in which to display your aristocratic, well-bred courtesy and expertise in a field. There were entire handbooks written for the correct way to kill and then process, say, a deer. There were entirely different rules if you were hunting a fox or a boar or a different kind of animal. So this passage is another chance for the Gawain poet to show his aristocratic audience that he's in the know, despite not being a Londoner, despite living in the boonies. Um, he's up on all the latest, most important ways to show uh, your aristocratic edge. The hunt is a place to show your style, just as much as court was. And the funny thing is, is that this idea has survived today. There's the ancestors of this idea in England with fox hunting. Um, fox hunting is a very elaborate ritual with uh, correct vocabulary, correct clothing, correct gear, certain kinds of horses, um, incomprehensible to the uninitiated or the not so high class. The Gawain poet writes with a savage, bloody beauty in these hunting scenes, deploying that correct vocabulary with extreme precision. It's unbelievably skilled, but more difficult to appreciate today due to our distance from that culture and taste. Maybe if you're a hunter, you might enjoy it more. I am not a hunter. It might be that uh, hunters and poetry folk might not coexist in the same Venn diagram, but I would be happy to be proven wrong about that. So listen briefly, just so that our, the shade of the Gawain poet isn't outraged that we just skip the hunting poetry entirely, to Simon Armitage's translation of The Hunting of the Doe. But the hinds were halted with hollers and whoops, and the din drove the does to sprint for the dells. Then the eye can see that the air is all arrows. All across the forest they flashed and flickered, biting through hides with their broad heads. What? They bleat as they bleed and they die on the banks. And always the hounds are hard on their heels and the hunters on horseback come hammering behind with stone-splitting cries as if cliffs had collapsed. From this loud, hacking, driving, thundering scene, the poet leads us into a quiet bedchamber back at the castle. Exhausted after all his journeys, Gawain sleeps late in a room dappled with sunlight. He awakens when he hears the door gently open. He quietly peers to see who the intruder is. It's the lady of the castle. And Gawain decides to pretend like he's still sleeping and meditate on what this visit might mean. She's gorgeously arrayed, beautiful as ever. Gawain decides he should stop pretending to sleep and ask her what she's doing here. And this part always cracks me up. So he stirred and stretched, turned on his side, lifted his eyelids, and looking alarmed, crossed himself hurriedly with his hand as if saving his life. I love the fake crossing himself with shock. I think the poet's having a little laugh at Gawain's bad acting, especially with the glimpse into his uh, interior thought. And by the way, 
this is something really interesting to note. We take interior monologuing or thought in literature for granted, but this is actually a very early example in English literature of interior consciousness in poetry. This is also why you should roll your eyes at anyone who thinks modern people are more conscious or more self-aware than medieval or ancient people. That's just a ridiculous, um, uh, not true thing. So Gawain is trapped, which the lady actually laughingly announces, just like those deer driven down towards the water, then slaughtered by the hunters in wait. Gawain carefully loads his words with laughter as he asks permission to rise and put on his clothes. So we think maybe he's sleeping naked, making the scene all the more vulnerable. The lady winkingly refuses. She notes she's pinned the famous Sir Gawain, and now she and he are left all alone. She suggestively emphasizes, do with me what you will. Not very subtle. Thus begins a game of romance chess. Each player in this game counters the other. The lady moves with overt seduction, layering each speech of hers with sexy innuendo. Gawain too layers his speech. He flirts, he compliments, but avoids her seduction at all costs, determined not to betray his host. But he's truly trapped, more than just being caught in bed with his pants down. Both of these characters know that one of the chivalric values of knighthood is that very love talk that I had mentioned in the last episode, the one that all the people at the banquet were so excited to hear Gawain talk this love talk. Gawain is effectively caught between two facets of his identity. The knight Gawain and the Christian Gawain are at odds. The knight Gawain is expected by his society and his tradition to woo and court this beautiful lady who's practically throwing herself at him, and whom the the poet makes perfectly clear Gawain does desire. The Christian Gawain, with Mary on the inside of his shield, must not commit adultery nor betray the person who took him in from the bitter cold, Bertilac. Finally, though, the lady taunts Gawain into giving her a kiss. May the Lord repay you for that prize performance, but I know that Gawain could never be your name. But why not? The knight asked nervously, afraid that some fault in his manners had failed him. The beautiful woman blessed him, then rebuked him. A good man like Gawain, so greatly regarded, the embodiment of courtliness to the, con- to the bones of his being, could have never lingered so long with a lady without craving a kiss as politeness requires or coaxing a kiss with his closing words. Yes, Gawain succumbs, enfolds her in his arms, and kisses her. Alarm bells should be ringing right about now. Um, the verse that Armitage has translated um, of Gawain as the embodiment of courtliness to the bones of his being uh, is in Middle English as courtesy is closed so clean in himself or courtesy is closed clean in himself. Remember Gawain's shield. Cleanness or purity and courtesy or impeccable knightly manners were both points on the pentangle, that star on the outside of his shield. And now they're at odds with each other. 
as so often happens in real life, parts of our identities clash with one another. Difficult choices or foolish mistakes reveal the selves we desire to be and who we really are. We see this all the time in public apologies, for example. I really hate the phrase used so often, that's not really who I am, after someone messes up publicly and has to apologize. It makes me want to say, though you may not like that you did that and now see the error of your ways, it was you who wrote that stupid tweet, made that ill-advised comment, did that horrible thing in the workspace, whatever it was. The poet lived before public apology was really a thing, but he sees that the values we build up around ourselves, these public and private identities, the shields, the self-portraits, simplify deeply complex motives and fragile ecosystems of inner peace. This, of course, doesn't mean that virtue isn't real or undesirable, but it does indicate that when we use virtues to construct ourselves, to portray ourselves to the world, they can be just as breakable as anything else. Any virtue, as every medieval theologian knew and would have taught a lot on, can be susceptible to that ultimate corruptor, pride. Gawain is not really proud in the way we today are used to thinking of pride. He's aware of the others around him. He's a servant, serving those he needs to serve. He doesn't trumpet his skills or flaunt how much people love him. But Gawain, like any of us, can become so aware of, so enchanted with this ideal, wonderful version of himself that he presents that that becomes the driving force behind all of his actions, virtuous or otherwise. Gawain so desperately wants to live up to his reputation as the perfect knight that he can resist this enchanting, lovely woman who so clearly wants to sleep with him up until she invokes that very identity of perfect knighthood. Once he kisses her, she leaves him to his great relief. He attends mass, and he feasts joyfully with her and the old crone, who's her companion. No damage has truly been done. In a famously homoerotic moment, Bertilac and Gawain exchange their winnings at that night's feast, following the rules of the game. Gawain merrily kisses Bertilac after receiving what seems like countless deer corpses. And on to the next day. Yet again, Bertilac happily slaughters. Today, instead of deer, he pursues a ferocious, massive wild boar. And I actually thought of this scene recently because um, a wild boar actually attacked the pop singer Shakira in a park in Spain, which is an absolutely wild headline that sounds generated by the web, but I promise it actually happened. Um, too bad Bertilac was not there for Shakira. Um, because wild boars can be extremely dangerous. They can actually kill people. And um, so this poet uh, emphasizes the danger, the heightened danger of this hunt, especially compared to yesterday's hunt. Um, Bertilac handily kills the great savage beast, again in that flawless, brutal web of specialized hunting poetry woven by this poet. And yet again, the lady sneaks into Gawain's room in the morning. And again, 
when he does not follow up on her more explicit advances, she challenges his identity. She suggests he could take what he wanted any time by force. If you're truly going, use those muscles to get what you want. Interestingly, just like in the last game, the beheading game, we see a, an implicit, subtle connection between a chivalric knightly identity and the violence of knighthood that is always just one step away. And Gawain rebuffs her, saying that while he does have nice big muscles, he doesn't take gifts not given freely. If she demands a kiss, he will courteously supply it. So she does, and he does. And she teasingly doubts him again, wondering aloud why such a renowned knight is not schooling her in love talk while her husband is away. Gawain cleverly says that he should be learning from her, not vice versa, and so he dodges this attempt. And so they kiss again. She leaves. He heads off to Mass. Bertilak and Gawain exchange their winnings that second night. But at the feast, the lady is so flirtatious with Gawain that he is, in Armitage's words, maddened and amazed, but his breeding forbade him from rebuking a lady and though tongues might wag, he returned her attention all night. Dawn of the third day. Bertilak hears mass and leaves to go hunt a wily fox. And our wily fox, Gawain, finds himself again with the lady in his bedchamber. He had been in a fitful sleep, dreaming of the green chapel and the coming blow. And this time, the poet tells us, the lady is dressed to truly impress we need to add a little more Middle English, as always, to this episode. So I'm going to read this part in Middle English. No ref good on her head, but the higher stones traced about her tresor be twenty in clusters. Her thriven face and her throat thrown on naked, her breast bare before and behind eke. There's a large naked expanse of skin that the poet is describing to us. And this skin dazzles Gawain with flowing, warming joy. And the poet warns us that Gawain stands in great peril unless Mary will save her knight. Gawain knows the boundary between chivalrous flirtation and adultery is thin, but he's swearing to himself that he won't pass it. They kiss, and the lady begs him to give her a gift to remember him by, or at least to take a gift from her. Now, don't forget, Gawain is supposed to give away anything he gives to Bertilak. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So this gift-giving, you may be familiar with this system of knightly behavior. It's often portrayed in um, films today. So think of a movie you've seen with a medieval tournament scene. The one I embarrassingly immediately think of is Disney's Robin Hood. Yes, the animated Robin Hood with the fox. And there's that scene with the archery tournament. So Fox Robin Hood in disguise takes Fox Maid Marian's handkerchief and he wears it proudly as a token of her esteem and affection. So knights often wore the token of their lady secretly or proudly. And in return, they won whatever tournament it was in her name. 
Often such tokens signified fealty to the wife of their lord. Sometimes they signified more. So the lady tries to give Gawain a ring, and when he refuses, she offers something smaller, lesser in value, so it seems. She unties a girdle, a belt or lace from around her body. It's green, trimmed with gold, and she tries to give it to him. He refuses, but she urges him to take it. If you know, Gawain, of the power this girdle possesses, you would not say no. Here's Armitage. For the body which is bound within this green belt, as long as it is buckled robustly about him, will be safe against anyone who seeks to strike him, and all the slyness on earth wouldn't see him slain. The man molded over, and it entered his mind. It might just be the jewel for the jeopardy he faced. The one condition the lady gives upon Gawain's taking this green life-saving girdle is not telling her husband. After some hesitation, Gawain can't resist. He agrees and he kisses her. He hides the girdle away. She leaves and Gawain goes to mass and confession. And this is so that if he dies on the morrow, he will be clean. Um, Medieval folk believed in the sacrament of confession as uh, something um, the, the priest would cleanse you of your sins after you had confessed. And so um, when you were facing death, you could be confident that you were not in mortal sin and in danger of hell. The poet tells us fully and frankly, Gawain confesses his sins. And this part honestly has always confused me and I'm still turning it over in my mind. The priest pronounces him clean, But did Gawain tell the priest of his lie of omission in keeping the girdle? Does it not count as a sin? The poet leaves a lot of wiggle room here. There's no clear answers. And yet again, Gawain and the Lord exchange winnings. Gawain kisses Bertilac three times. The Lord gives Gawain this old fox pelt. And they feast. Gawain believes he has weathered the temptations of Bertilac's castle without dishonoring his host and damaging his own reputation. Yet, in the back of his mind, he can't escape the fact that he will face his doom the next day. Will he live? Will he die? Is the girdle truly magical? He's broken the rules of one game. Does it matter? Only tomorrow can tell. Next week is the final episode in this Sir Gawain in the Green Knight series, Fit For. It is wonderful. So I can't wait to share it with you. If you have questions or thoughts, I would love to hear them. You can tweet at me or comment on my Instagram at oldbookswithgrace or even send me an email at oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, I'd really appreciate it if you rated, shared, or subscribed to help others find this podcast more easily. Thanks for listening, and until next time, when we finally figure out where the Green Chapel is. heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas prayer book.
by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser. Published by the Sophia Institute Press.